So last time we spoke about prophecy in general and we talked about what it would take to become a prophet yourself. Now this is a vast subject as we mentioned last time. In fact, I have uh, four books that I'm using as central research, um, research uh, guides towards the 13 principles of faith. The biggest one of them has 200 pages with small letters just on principle number six, which is the principle of prophecy in general. There really is a lot to cover, and I decided to organize today's discussion kind of, you know, after the, we had the introduction to prophecy, what, what's next? What I decided to do is to try to chart a history of prophecy from creation, from Adam, until prophecy went extinct, or at least it was temporarily made extinct, and to see the various kind of ups and downs, the ebbs and flows of, of prophecy. And I think that this will give us um, kind of a deeper understanding into the subject of prophecy and the sixth principle. I'm a little bit worried because I'm pretty sure that the presentation may sound a little bit disjointed, but I think that in trying to compress a lot of information into the time allotted, I think it's the best template for moving forward in, pro in principle number six, the idea of prophecy. Before we begin, I want to reiterate that we really truly don't have a concept of what prophecy is, what does the experience of the prophecy really look like, what does a prophet really understand, because a prophet knows everything. Every book is open before them. <coughs> All knowledge is clear and lucid in front of them. They're going to transcend to a different dimension via their prophecy. They're also capable of all kinds of uh, cool parlor tricks. As we said, you know, everyone has anything lost. They just go to the prophet. The prophet tells them right away where it is. But their connection to the divine, their bond with the spiritual world and God is so intense that those things really don't titillate them at all. I, heard, I, I read an analogy to explain this, suppose you have a people get you know people getting together to study Torah, and one of the people who's there amongst the group is blind, and everyone's there studying Torah, an amazing discussion, and the person who's blind who interrupts them, he says, "What color is the paint on the wall?" That was the question the blind person doesn't know, and of course the other participants would say, "We're talking about Torah." Like you're talking about all this nonsense, all these things that are truly immaterial. To them, they have vision. They see the walls like that, no problem. That's not what they're interested in. They came, they gathered together, they're united to be involved in more lofty pursuits. A prophet is a visionary. He's a seer. They see. Everything's open before them. When Saul was missing his donkeys, he went to Samuel because Samuel knew where it was. But was that what's, what Samuel was focused on? That, that was his pursuit? No. He was involved in much loftier pursuits. And in fact, it's ironic that the only people that wouldn't abuse all the cool abilities that the prophet has is the prophet themselves. To us, we're thinking, okay, if I was a prophet, I would right away figure out what tomorrow's lottery would be. <laughs> I see the future, after all, to a certain degree. Obviously, each prophet on their own level, that's what I would do. But that's why I'm not a prophet, because the only people that are able to attain that level of vision 
are the ones that are so immersed in the spiritual world, this world is immaterial, it doesn't really matter to them. It's open before them, but it doesn't really matter to them. Now, when we talk about the history of prophecy, of course, the first place to start is the very first prophet, the very first man in, in the Torah narrative, and of course, that is Adam. And we see that Adam, for example, he gives names to all the animals. And our sages tell us, what does it mean he gives names to all the animals? He's not, <clears throat> he's not choosing arbitrary names. You know, this is a tiger because it's a tiger. He is able to understand the essence of each one of these species, what they are, what role God put them in this world for, and to give them a fitting name based upon their role in the Almighty's world. Consequently, this ability, this skill of Adam to be able to give names to all the animals is a reflection of Adam's you know, total clairvoyance, total clarity, total complete prophecy. In fact, there's many sources in the Talmud and other related literature that talk about Adam's unrestrained vision. For example, the Talmud tells us that Adam, he was from the earth to the heavens. So that makes him sound like he's Robert Wadlow, the tallest man ever, right? Eight foot eleven, really long legs and really cumbersome and lumbering. That's not what it means. It means that he had total vision over everything. Second Talmudic related teaching tells us that he was able to see from one end of the world to the other end of the world. He didn't have those Superman x-ray glasses. He had unrestrained vision of a prophet. He was able to understand everything of all the elements of all the spiritual entities, like all the angels. He understood them on a very fundamental level, so much so that the Talmud actually tells us when Adam appeared, the angels conflated Adam with God and wanted to worship Adam because he was a spiritual stature, the likes of which they've never seen, and they concluded this must be a representation of God. Of course, Adam said, no, 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 you're making a big blunder. I am a creation like you. Let us go together and let us all worship God. But of course, what this is telling us is that Adam was the epitome of a great visionary, of a great prophet, at least before his sin. After his sin, he's diminished. Of course, this is a much larger discussion. After Adam's sin, he's diminished. His vision is curtailed. He loses at least that high level of prophecy, and all of world history changes as a result of that sin. And broadly speaking, our mandate as a species and as individuals is to try to restore ourselves and our world to the state of Adam pre-sin and to become as great as we can and become prophets, really. And in fact, we're told that Moses, he was the only one that became like Adam before his sin and he had the same level of prophecy like Adam before his sin, that completely clear, unadulterated prophecy of Adam was mirrored only by Moses, at least mirrored by a living person only by Moses, and that's why Moses is in a class of his own. He's going to be subject of principle number seven, the prophecy of Moses. But that's where we introduce the prophecy in general. Of course, Noah's a prophet. There's other prophets in between uh, Adam and Abraham, 
but we read in Genesis all about Abraham. And the Midrash tells us that Abraham had a very colorful backstory. He was a thinker, he was a philosopher, he was an influencer, he taught the world about monotheism, his life was threatened as a result, he was saved miraculously. We're given the whole backstory to Abraham, and yet you open the Torah, and the first introduction that we have to Abraham is God tells him, leave your homeland, leave your father's home, go move to the land of Canaan. I say just tell us, is that at this juncture, Abraham is 75 years old. He's had a, whole, a long life till then, and he's been thinking about God since he was three. So the 72 years that are unaccounted for. Why? Why are we only, <coughs> Why are we only introduced to Abraham as already an advanced ages and advanced achievements? Because now Abraham has unlocked prophecy. And thus, only once Abraham is already a prophet, only then does the Torah begin his narrative. And our sages tell us that while Moses was the greatest of prophets, the next level is the prophecy of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were the greatest prophets this side of Moses. And the way it tells it to us is very interesting. The Midrash tells us that the forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they were the Merkava. The Merkava, not the Israeli taint by that same name, but the Merkava means a chariot, chariot, a cavalcade. They're the cavalcade, the chariot of God. And what does that mean? So the way it appears is in chapter 17 of Genesis, in the aftermath of the instruction that Abraham is given to circumcise himself, of course that is a prophecy, we read that the prophecy ended. God says to him, walk before me, be perfect, circumcise yourself. When the child's eight days, you circumcise, that's my covenant. It's a, it's a chapter 17 in Genesis. And then it says that God finished speaking to Abraham, and God ascended above Abraham. Says Rashi, what does this mean? This teaches us that Abraham was the chariot of God. What does this mean? The commentaries tell us what this means. A king has a chariot. A king has the entourage, the posse, the detail that's always ready at a moment's notice. A king wakes up in the middle of the night and wants ice cream or wants to go for a ride about town. You don't have to wake up the bleary RA drivers. You don't have to fill up the tank. It's always ready. It's always ready at a moment's notice. That's what a king's chariot is. Abram, Isaac, and Jacob are always primed for prophecy. They're always ready. They don't need to say, oh, you know what, let me get in the frame of mind. Let me tidy myself up. Let me get ready. No. Give me five minutes. The, the, the king's coming to my house now. Ooh, let's set things up, make it ready. No. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are such a lofty spiritual stature. They're the king's chariot. They're always primed and ready for prophecy without any preparation. And therefore, what happens when Abraham's prophecy concludes? It's not that Abraham lowers himself. He now is no longer in a state of prophecy. It's God ascends above him. 
Abraham is still ready to go. It's not that prophecy ended because Abraham now moved on to other things. Abraham lowered himself and brought himself back to the mundane world. No, Abraham is still in the state of prophecy. He's still ready. God says, okay, I'm done communicating. God ascends above him. And the commentaries note that we have another prophet, or at least someone who communicates with God, Cain, in chapter 4 of Genesis. And it says by Cain that he departed from God. Meaning the prophecy ended not because God said, I'm done talking to you, but because Cain said, okay, he's no longer in that state of prophecy. Now, of course, as we mentioned last time, even with an individual prophet, there's ups and downs. There isn't continuous prophecy. There's times in their life when they have prophecy, times when they don't have it, related to all kinds of circumstances. But there's something special about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that they are always ready to go. They don't need to be reminded. They don't need to be given a few minutes warning. They don't need to tidy themselves up. They're ready to go. I want to add that my uh, grandfather, blessed memory, he used to say that when Jacob reunited with Joseph after 22 years of separation, it's one of the momentous events in the book of Genesis, and if you read the verses clearly, you'll notice that, that Joseph is processing this reunion with deep emotions. He's crying, he's getting all involved. Whereas Jacob is more stoic, doesn't seem to be responding emotionally. And then you look at the commentary, you look at Rashi, Rashi tells us that Jacob was involved in other things. He's saying, reciting the Shema. So where there's this happy reunion, Jacob thought he lost his, his child, he thought he died, he's been miserable for 22 years, he's been inconsolable, and now he's finally meeting, and Joseph is crying on his neck, it's a very emotional, from Joseph's perspective, whereas Jacob says, oh, this is the right time to recite the Shema. So it's one of the questions, what's going on over here? Why is Jacob reciting the Shema, not Joseph? What's the, what's the inconsistency? What is the... Uh, you know, what is the difference between Jacob and Joseph? So my grandfather, blessed memory, he brought this point. Jacob was always ready for prophecy. He was, of course, a prophet, but he would not need to kind of muster up the preparation for prophecy. He was always there. And he was worried. He's meeting Joseph. And, of course, there's going to be an emotional gush, and he's going to focus for a second on something which is not God, his child that he missed, that he lost, Already lost, and that is going to right away boot him from the chariot. Because even though maybe God doesn't want to appear to them, but the stature of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is that they're the chariot, meaning they're always ready to go. They never need to be nudged back to be ready. And even if God's not going to appear to him at that time, still, if he loses focus for a second, he's no longer part of the chariot. His stature has diminished because there was a time that he wasn't ready for prophecy. And therefore, he grounded himself by reciting the Shema, focusing on God to kind of sidestep, to avoid losing for that moment that spiritual readiness for prophecy. So, of course, when we're reading this, we're like, okay, this is not just standard prophecy. To have that preparation, that elevation, that ascension to that high level that's unimaginable for us, but to constantly maintain that for 100 years plus, 
That's what we talk about when we say Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's why it says the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, and it doesn't apply that to anyone else. Now I want to say that even Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they paled in comparison compared to Moses. Moses is a different level entirely. Moses is aspaklaria meira, the words of the Talmud. He had the clear vision, the most clear vision, and that, of course, is a separate subject that we're going to talk about a little bit down the line. We're going to skip it right now when talking about the, the various points of, um, of importance, or at least of the history of, of prophecy, to try to deepen our understanding. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, of course, the most significant event in human history and the most significant seminal event in the history of prophecy is at Mount Sinai. After the Exodus, 50 days later, Jewish people convened around the mountain, and then you have something that never happened previously and was never replicated, that an entire nation ascends or is temporarily catapulted into the state of prophecy. Now, this is a major, major subject of discussion amongst the commentaries. Exactly what was the level of, prof level of prophecy? Exactly how was it possible to have this very unnatural, if you will, temporary state in which people that are not capable of prophecy are suddenly having prophecy? It's a big discussion. I want to talk a little bit about it because it's a very significant event, not only as a one-time event, but this, this was... This was the moment of prophecy that really is the father, uh, the grandfather of all other prophecies as we, as we shall see. So the Talmud tells us, of course, at Sinai, God spoke to the Jewish people and all, to all future souls that were not alive then. And in fact, the Talmud says all future converts, they were also there, their souls were also there. And it says that, uh, the Talmud tells us that the first Two of the Ten Commandments, that was delivered directly by God, whereas the rest came via Moses. In fact, if you read the Ten Commandments very critically, very carefully, you'll notice a shift from first person, where God's speaking directly to us, so to speak, I'm the Lord your God, I took you out of Egypt, versus once we transition to the third, you know, the, the latter eight of the Ten Commandments, it's speaking in third person. Hashem, your God. It's, not, it's, it's almost as if Moshe is talking to us and speaking about God in third person. And the question that the Ramban asks is, you know, on, the, on this Talmud, of course, the Talmud is, is basing it, you know, it's not, it's not just random speculation. There's the tradition that we have that the first two came directly from God and the subsequent eight came via Moses. However, the verses say quite clearly otherwise. Why? The verse says that God spoke all these words to the Jewish people. And that God wrote on the tablets everything that he said to the Jewish people. So is it everything or is it just the first two? If the first two were delivered by God to the Jewish people, well, that's the prophecy. And, and then the subsequent eight, that's, that's prophecy to Moses and Moses to us but it has that inter intermediary, that Moses intermediary, which is like the rest of the Torah, but that would not qualify to be included in the verse that says that God wrote on 
both tablets actually, the first and second ta- set of tablets. The difference between the first and second tablets was not whether God wrote on them the Ten Commandments, but whether, whether God prepared the stone upon which to write it. The first one God did. The second one God tells Moses, you prepare the stone, I'll inscribe in the stone. You give me the body, I'll give you the soul. Whereas the first, God gives us the body and the soul, so to speak, of the tablets. But it says upon them, all Ten Commandments, and these were all written by God, the words that he spoke to the Jewish people. So how could you say that the first two were the sole ones in which there was prophecy to the entire nation? So the Ramban has a very clever resolution as follows. The first two, it was prophecy to the entire nation, and they understood it and they processed it exactly how Moses did. Whereas the subsequent eight, they heard the prophecy, they heard the voice, but they did not understand it. And like I mentioned last time, prophecy has at least two components. There is the absorbing of the message, and then there's the understanding of the digesting of that message. And that part, that second critical part of the prophecy, they did not have, and that required Moses to unpack it for them, and therefore, yes, they technically heard it, but they still heard it from Moses as well because they didn't understand that prophecy. And he explains the first two Ten Commandments, they're so critical, they're so necessary because they're the, the backbone of all of Torah, all positive mitzvos are a fulfillment of the first of the Ten Commandments, all negative prohibitions, trans- transgressions, are all emanations of the second, of, of not having a, fall, a, a false God, of not rejecting God, and therefore that was imperative for the Jewish people to hear it from God directly, because really that's a condensed, like a concentrated version of all of Torah, and therefore that had to be directly from God. But everyone agrees. So this is interesting just to say, like, what was the content of the prophecy at Sinai? And we're still going to talk about that later on uh, throughout the 13 principles. But how exactly does a nation, a whole nation, achieve prophecy? Now, who are these people? These are people that a few months earlier were slaves. So what happened to be able to turn a nation, I'm sure there were some righteous people, I'm sure there were less righteous people, but it's a, it's a mixed bag, right? How does this, how does everyone, including, by the way, the mixed multitude, the Egyptians that joined on board, how do they all experience prophecy as one? That, too, is a major discussion in the commentaries, and there are various answers to that question. So one of the answers is, is that this was a miracle. This was a again, once in history event that a nation that, and people that were not capable of prophecy, they got it nonetheless. And the Talmud says that they died and they were blown 12 miles away and they had to be revived and they died again. That's why they told Moses, we can't handle this. You speak to us. We're not capable. This is unnatural. This is being brute forced. And indeed, this was something which was out of the ordinary. This really, this wasn't a fit. And it happened anyhow because it was necessary because upon this event, the truth of Moses' prophecy and the truth of Torah is going to be built. There is other ideas 
as to uh, understanding this, this problem of how a nation comprised of a collection of different people, people that are previously were not prophets, how do they have prophecy? It does rely on some of the same ideas, but one of the commentaries suggests a very, very interesting idea that as a result of the Exodus and the subsequent days that followed, and they start getting the manna, and they're surrounded by the clouds, and they have the pillar of fire, and they've experienced that year, that miraculous year in, e year, the miraculous year in Egypt with all the miracles. The nation is being elevated. Again, it is, it is supernatural. That's why it didn't last. That's why the, the golden calf happened right, right afterwards. But the nation is being elevated to this higher level, so much so that some of the commentaries suggest, based upon a Talmud, the Talmud says that when Adam and Eve sinned, the venom of the serpent began to quiver within them. They became corrupted because of the sin. At Sinai, it's a completion of a process of expunging that venom, of removing the ill effects, the stench of the sin of Adam has now ceased. So they've been temporarily restored to the state of Adam the stature of Adam, and consequently the prophecy of Adam, the way it was before his sin. Did Adam do anything to deserve his prophecy? No, he was treated like that. Did the nation do anything to deserve the prophecy? No. They're being created now anew as Adam before their sin. It's an amazing, a very deep idea that uh, some of the commentaries go with to explain how the nation achieved prophecy at Sinai. And incidentally, we can surmise from this that if you look at the sin of the golden calf and what it did it's identical to what the sin of Adam and Eve and what that did that's exactly parallel to each other we have this period this blissful utopia that was unearned unearned utopia of Adam in the garden and then he has this very unceremonious drop from, from God's graces because of this sin and then we have this nation is elevated, and again, this idyllic utopia, unearned, and right away immediately follows that same pattern. There's that immediate drop. And of course, what this teaches us is that unearned greatness doesn't last. But at that moment of Sinai, the nation was like Adam, free of sin, free of the Eitzharah, not subject to that quivering venom within them, and therefore, of course, the result of that human is, is unrestrained prophecy. I want to point, I, I feel like we're, we're, we're too far down this line for me to avoid this. The Kabbalists tell us that, you know, Adam's soul was one soul, and then it got divided up, and it got divided up, and it got divided up, and it was divided into three, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Like, that was a replica of Adam and then into 12, the 12 sons of Jacob, and then the 70 to 70 souls that descended to Egypt. And at Sinai, the 600,000 souls, that was a precise replica of Adam. What that means, you have to ask the Kabbalists. But what I can tell you what it means is, is that at Sinai, at the foot of the mountain, there was a replica of Adam before his sin. And, th th and now it makes sense how a nation, not worthy necessarily, not earned, how a nation experienced prophecy because they were, at that time, recreated and refashioned as Adam was before his sin.
Now, the results of Sinai, of course, are very significant. And we could almost suggest that everything we have today, all of Torah, it's all an extension of Sinai. Because after all, everything's built upon the foundations of Sinai. But the Talmud goes on to tell us even further that actually all prophecy was delivered at Sinai. It wasn't actually conveyed at Sinai. But, you know, the, the touch point of heaven and earth that happened at Sinai, that's when all the prophecies were delivered, and that's when the prophecies were here. They just, they just weren't dispatched yet. So, for example, it quotes a verse in Malachi. Malachi is one of the latest of the prophets. It says, this was the teaching, the prophecy of Malachi that was in his hand. It was in the hand of Malachi. It says in the Midrash. It doesn't say it was in the days of Malachi. It was in the hands of the Malachi. Why? Because Malachi, the prophet, Malachi, I think you pronounce it in English, the, the prophet, he was holding it since Sinai. At Sinai, there was a prophecy delivered to Malachi, and it was in his hand. It's just that he didn't have the permission to convey that. Meaning that this was the, this was the, the funnel through which prophecy was delivered, because this, after all, is a touch point heaven and earth, and then all the other prophets are the ones who are at their time, in the right place, are actually delivering what was actually conveyed via this mass prophecy that was given at Sinai. Moreover, <coughs> the Talmud tells us, the book of, of Brachos, right at the beginning, it's one of those pages in Talmud that almost, if you're, anyone who studies Talmud eventually gets to it because it's like, first book of Talmud's Brachos, and it's like page five, I think it is. So it's right at the beginning. And maybe we can even posit that it was put there because it's so important. Uh, you know, at least people will get to this because it's so central. But it says that what was given at Sinai is everything. Torah, Nevi'im, the prophets, Suvim, the writings. Moreover, any insight, any new novel insight that we come up with today in Torah, brand new, no one's ever said it, actually that was part of what was given at Sinai. All the words of the prophets, all given at Sinai, and that is why Moses is the father of all prophets, and he's the father of all the sages, because after all, he was the one who facilitated the great transferring of prophecy and of Torah and of godly wisdom and godly inspiration that was done at Sinai. And we have another shift that happens here. The Talmud tells us, you know, Sinai has a lot of different names. A lot of mountains have different names. You know, Mount Moriah, Har Yerah, Jerusalem, Temple Mount, Harabait, a lot of names for the same mountain. Mount Sinai is called Mount Sinai. It's also called Chorev. Chorev or Horeb. Why is Mount Sinai called Chorev? So the word Chorev means destruction. So simultaneous with the ascension of the nation at Sinai, and all the future prophecies that are being conveyed at Sinai, there is a concurrent destruction for everyone else. Because now the nation's been selected, one nation's been selected as the nation